Hi, my name's Drew Swenson, and I helped edit today's episode. Stereotypes don't tell the whole story. I'm your host, Annie Prafke, and you're listening to Misfits, a podcast featuring discussions with people who felt like black sheep in their communities because of their identity. it's far more easier for a native person to tell that story in front of a camera if there's native people that are taking charge of that production, as opposed to say, if there are white people behind the lens or directing the project. Because for what it's worth, the questions are different, the intention is different, and, and ultimately like, what is this gonna be used for? Falcon Gott is a Native American filmmaker and photographer of the Sapatuea Cree Nation. Currently based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, you can frequently find him rollerblading and skateboarding throughout the city, which often inspires his work. Today, we talk about Falcon's journey to becoming an artist, the importance of creating with intention, and the wild stunts he pulls to get the perfect shot. Falcon spent half his childhood in Canada before moving to Moorhead, Minnesota in high school. He describes the experience as jarring. It's never easy to enter high school in a completely new place, much less a new country. Falcon said the move was especially difficult because he didn't encounter many kids from a similar background to him at Moorhead High. I do wish that it was a little bit more diverse because I knew, whether or not I knew it, like having friends like that, having possibly like similar, similar experiences and growing up in as a person of color, that probably would have helped that transition a little bit more just because a majority of my friends were white. After moving, Falcon returned to a childhood hobby, rollerblading. He says the place he felt most at home was the skate park in Fargo, the town next to Moorhead. I was really hyped that Fargo had a downtown skate park that wasn't too far from where I lived. And so I think that also helped with the transition because not only did I have friends at, that, you know, at school, but I also was creating friends at the local skate park. During his sophomore year of high school, Falcon's sister got a camera for Christmas. He says her interest in it died off after only a few months, and she buried her gift in the closet. 
While he didn't have any experience with photography, that point-and-shoot camera haunted Falcon, and a few months later, he asked her if he could unearth it to shoot his friends doing jumps at the skate park. She said yes. I remember filming a trick of my friend doing a trick, and I filmed it from two different angles, and I remember just, like, editing it in, like, Windows Live Movie Maker, and it looked good, and I, like, without any prior knowledge of film editing, it literally felt like I invented something. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this is so cool. You know, that, that instantly drew my attention and my interest to, to filming. Falcon's passion for photography and filmmaking grew, and he decided to attend Minnesota State University of Moorhead for film production. While his focus was film, he knew the best way to sharpen his videography skills was to get comfortable behind the camera. That's when I was like, look, if you're, if you're going for film production and if you're really interested in being like, like a camera operator, like you need to better your skills constantly. And I was like, how can I do that? How can I do that almost every day? Or what is something that I can do to invest in that, the progression of um, you know, making yourself better as a camera operator? And I was like, photography, duh, because videography, photography, like their rules are the same more or less, or basically. And I was like, okay, when you're not doing video work, you're going to be taking photos. And when you're not taking photos, you're going to be doing video work. That was around like, I think 2012, where I was basically just shooting everything and anything that I could in photography. And so I just remember during the summer, I would constantly go for like night bike rides, like three, four, five hour bike rides and take my camera with me, take my tripod with me and just shoot everything and anything that was of interest. That summer, I really pushed to understand what a camera is capable of doing. I can relate to that awe that Falcon felt when he first got behind the camera and learned the magic of editing. Creating podcasts is similar. It's about collecting snippets of life and then stringing together the music and the audio. And as you begin to weave the story together, you realize you've created something. It's a feeling that just can't be explained. Next, Falcon began experimenting with different types of lenses to see what kind of effects he could get. At that time, I was really interested in nature photography and time lapses and uh, that genre of work. One of the main um, lenses used for that type of work are like super wide lenses. So, you know, anything down to like a 10 millimeter lens. And that's what I invested in. And it was like the most money that I've ever spent on anything. I think that lens that I bought was like $650. And I was like... Yeah, I was just like, and at that time too, I didn't even have much money, but because I was just focused on building my skill set, like it was a, it was a good investment. I, I don't know, I thought, and it still is. And so I bought a super, super wide lens and I was just blown away by what like the perspective of that lens was, was, was able to do. And it just made my, you know, my midnight bike rides so much more enjoyable and much more interesting as I started to really see what this lens was, was capable of doing. And once I was like, you know, just like with the, with the 50 millimeter lens, once I, you know, hit that ceiling and I was confident with, with what I was able to shoot with a super wide, I was like, okay, all right, what's next? What's the next stage? Then I got a fisheye lens. So a fisheye lens is basically like, you know, incredibly wide, like eight millimeters. It distorts linear composition lines and and just like you know it the glass literally bulges out of the out of the housing and 
that was a game changer. And I think that when I was experimenting with those lenses, especially with the fisheye, it was like, it, it got me into that experimental phase and just filming with it and taking photos with it. I was just like, dang, this is super interesting. Like, like how, why isn't this lens utilized more out there? You know? Right. And, and for people who don't know what that is, because uh, if you check out Falcon's work on his website, there's a lot of photos that have that, but it, it creates almost like, I'd say like a fishbowl effect where it, it like kind of curves the the image. And so it, it looks kind of like warped, but it creates a really cool perspective. And I agree. I like don't see it used very often. So I think that's something that's really unique about your work. Thank you. And, you know, fish eyes, you know, used heavily in, in like skate culture when it comes to taking photos or, or like filming. And once I was able to get a hold of that, like, I was like, dang, dude, like, I'm very confident in my skills as a filmmaker and photographer that I can capture and make something look like as interesting as possible for the viewer. Right. And you get really cool perspectives, obviously, through looking through these unique types of lenses. But I think you also need sort of an artist's eye to be able to find subjects and find angles that are that are interesting. And I, I'm curious, do you think as someone who is a rollerblader and who bikes and, and does that kind of thing, does that kind of help develop an artist's eye for you or give you a different perspective on the world that you think you use in your art? Oh, definitely. Like I hardly ever, ever go, like if I'm out taking photos, you know, I'm, I mainly take the super wide and, and fisheye with me just because whenever I'm out and about, it's like, how can you not think about capturing something like arch architecture or when I meet up with my friends to go skate or just anything random, it's like, I see it. And even when I don't have my camera, it's like, I, I cannot see something that, that, that I was like, dang, that looks super interesting to shoot. And I might like come back to it. Like I might take a photo with it, with my camera, with my, um, with my phone, and then like possibly come back to it at some point with, with those two lenses, because I just know that, that I can make it look interesting. And even if it's, if it's just like testing the shot with those, with those lenses, it's like, you know, it's better to have those images, whether or not they're good, it's, you gain that experience, you know, you, you keep what, what works and you learn from what doesn't that constantly plays in my mind all the time not only with like photography, photography work, but just like in life in general. In 2021, Falcon also served as the North Dakota Human Rights Film Festival Native American Programs Director. He was honored to be able to curate films produced by Native filmmakers for the Fest, which engages community members in social justice issues worldwide. He describes the experience. You know, putting the time and effort and just like trying to really create something that, that's unique and informative that where maybe non-native audiences that do attend the film festival they take something away from it and learn about like you know contemporary native issues do you think it was inspiring for you as a native filmmaker to see other native filmmakers and and content that addressed native issues oh yeah i'm, I'm constantly on the lookout for native filmmakers you know having a twist or like you know showcasing how they see whatever it is that they, they, they want to tell through through film there's like this this term called indigenizing the lens and that basically derives from early golden age of cinema or like hollywood cinema where a lot of the times when it comes to representing natives on screen you know whether it be through you know fiction or nonfiction, representation is not accurate and it's you know what's put on the screen through someone that's non-native 
is like definitely not accurate. It's a farce. And when you when you have a native person behind the lens directing a shoot or of or a project, that that narrative, that idea, those experiences that 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 come through directing the project, they're totally different. And they're so full of information that helps dispel a lot of like stereotypes while also uplifting contemporary native voices in many of the nations, uh, native nations throughout, you know, North America. And so it's like always just, you know, when something pops up in my feed or, you know, I get an email about like, oh, like, you know, American Indian Film Festival or something with indigenous issues or in, an indigenous story, like I, I instantly look into it because I find it super interesting how natives use film to, to tell a story. I know from your website, something that you're interested in is showing the diversity of experiences that Native people can have. And like you said, dispelling stereotypes and, you know, showing perspectives like from a, from a Native perspective. Is there a subject or, or maybe a perspective that you think is not currently being shown of Native people in media, of which, like you said, there's, there's not a whole lot, unfortunately, that you really hope to do or that you hope to see in the near future? There's always like, you know, whenever there's an issue or a topic, whether it's old or, or, uh, or coming out, like there will always be like a native filmmaker that jumps to that opportunity to tell that story or to take that responsibility to tell that story. Um, just because like, you know, much rather have a native person documenting and, and, and doing the work, putting in the work to uh, help tell a story from a native perspective than say like a non-native person doing it because when a native person does it obviously there's a there's already like a related something that connects with say the native subjectee and say like the native interviewer where they just already know if that makes sense as opposed with say like a non-native director or, or, or interviewer from my experience from it whenever I do interviews or and like handling a project where I have to interview people it's much more comfortable because we both understand what, what's trying to be said and heard. And that's important because when it's comfortable to tell a story, the information is so much more clear and understandable. And it comes easy to tell a story as opposed with like someone that's not native. I think there's like a level of trust there maybe too. It's like when someone from your same community or when they say outright that they they're trying to represent native people in a positive light or to bring attention to this artist you maybe kind of go into it with like oh this person has the right intention Is, do you think that's at all part of it oh for sure definitely um and you hit the nail right on the head there it was like intention is like key because because there's a responsibility in us you know as native people to tell their own stories and when when the intention is not there, that story gets misrepresented, which does nothing to, to help authenticate what this story is trying to tell. Because a lot of the times, you know, like, you know, like with mainstream media, they focus on, on typically what everybody knows. And most of the viewers are non-native. And sadly, more or less, they probably only understand or know about stereotypes. Take, for example, like the, what's happening in Canada with like the boarding schools. Are, are you aware of like what's, what that's about? May refresh me, maybe. Okay. In Canada, they're finding a lot of unmarked graves on what used to be boarding schools. And a lot of these graves are, you know, 
children, young people who attended these schools. And it's been known by native people for a very long time that these boarding schools were very detrimental to, to native uh, life lifestyle because boarding schools were made so that native children are basically stolen from their community, put into these schools, these institutions and give up their, their way of life, their indigenous way of life. So, you know, learning to speak English, not practicing like, you know, their language or ceremonial practices, trying to get this idea that they needed to assimilate into mainstream culture. And if any student or students were to oppose that, they were, you know, ultimately like punished. And so, you know, this punishment ranged from physical and emotional abuse to ultimately death. The Canadian government sent at least 150,000 Native children to boarding schools from the late 1800s through much of the 20th century, as reported by the New York Times. The goal was to meld them into assimilated citizens. As Indigenous groups claim they've located hundreds of graves of unidentified children from these school grounds, the memory of the estimated thousands of children who went missing from Indian residential schools is difficult to ignore. And this is something that Native people have always known about. But when it comes to like non-native people, this is news to them. Like that's why it's important that native people tell their stories because more or less we've always known about them in some way or form, you know, parents or like great grandparents, like, you know, they were a part of it at some point in time, they lived through it. And so for them to tell their stories, however traumatic of an experience uh, that is uh, that they went through, it's far more easier for a native person to tell that story in front of a camera if there's native people that are taking charge of that production as opposed to say if there are white people behind the lens or directing the project because for what it's worth the questions are different the intention is different and and ultimately like what is this going to be used for you know, like, is it just going to be used for, for, I don't know, something on air that's just going to live there? Or can it be used, they say, as something that's educational and promotional and uh, used to, you know, what's its longevity? And so with a Native person, I think that with, with hopefully, like, the, the idea is that, you know, you're, you're using this to, to, to tell a story with the best intentions and with as much respect to the people that are a part of it because not only is it important to educate, but to let people know that like, you know, this is something that happened in like, history and it's not that far. It's now definitely not that long ago. It's like less than like definitely less than a hundred years. Yeah. I mean, that's a really hard thing to, to hear. I, I think I remember vaguely an article that came out last year that was about a mass grave that was found in Canada, but since then I haven't heard anything. So it's kind of that one article, it was in the news, it was like a big deal for a day, and then it's just forgotten. And so I think, like you said, 
when someone goes into it with the intention of, okay, this is something, this is a story that needs to be told, a trauma that's happened in our community. And we want to make people aware of it and to remember it and to not forget it. That's different than, oh, this is a big news story. And I'm going in with the attention of this is sensational. I just want to like have this be a big media thing for one day, you know, and that's a different intention. And when you're in that community and there is the pain and the trauma that comes straight from that, you obviously don't want to just sensationalize all of the terrible things that have happened to you. Um, And and that's something I've heard with other communities of color too, when there are movies that come out that are just about, that are about like slavery, for example, or police brutality. And it's really just, we see more trauma and abuse done onto people of color in a way that doesn't seem very sensitive or, you know, like what's this really about or what is this trying to change? And so I think that's a really good point that you bring up. I want to ask kind of what you think the responsibility is of an artist in creating their work. If you think it's essential for them to bring in identity, whether it's their ethnic or their racial identity, sexuality, do you think that's inevitable that it will come through in their work? And if not, do you think that's something that they have a responsibility to do? I think at at some point in an artist's career, they will explore that direction. I know on my end, I think you can see parts of it in terms of identity, but I haven't taken, like, I haven't dove right into it yet. Like I do have photography projects and film projects that I would like to do that in my mind is original to myself where, you know, identity and like personal experiences will come to fruition with say, you know, whatever photography project that I'm doing and, or if I'm to make a native narrative film, like those can be expressed through some of the characters. And when I was thinking about that, that idea about, all right, how can I use my, my, not only my identity, but like my personal experiences through my work of art, I felt at that time, which was like a couple of years ago that I wasn't, my skills weren't ready yet, or I wasn't able to put through my thoughts down on paper clearly, but because I'm constantly trying to like, you know, grow as a person and really like look into myself as, you know, as an artist, I think I'm just starting to grasp that. And, you know, I I have scripts that, that I've created and that I'm working on and that I want to like, just put out, but I think I'm almost ready for that in terms of like, you know, looking for funding and just seeing what it's about. I think on my end, like a lot of like pre-production or like thought has to be put into it for it to come out the best like version of it, of itself. And it's exciting. And I know like time will tell and I'm all about just being patient with it because when it, when it's ready, it'll be ready. What do you think the biggest barriers are in the art world for Native people specifically or people of color in general? I think that the, that depends. Just having access to whatever it is that you'd like to explore. If you don't have a lot of money and you're wanting to explore, you know, a specific medium of some sort, it's like, how do you go around that? How do you, how do you find that, that, that accessibility for it? And so I think that that's an issue for, for a lot of young artists. I think there's a lot of potential for, for young artists, but just like not being able to have that, that ability to, to have access to, to equipment or materials is, is, 
is is there i've i've helped teach like you know native youth about like entry entry level filmmaking and photography where we try to supply like a ton of like just everything that they need and so we just give them the utensils and the guidance and they're free to explore what what this medium is capable of doing and i'm sure that's that that's the same idea for a lot of other things uh, for a lot of other um programs out there like that like you know having access to like painting materials or drawing materials or beading materials and i think that's a good start because i know like growing up i really wish that i had those opportunities that kids had now <laughs> because there's like there's so much out there that that are trying to uplift young artists and like native art like art schools or native like you know intensive two-week art courses that you know everything's paid for and you know they get to you know learn from native instructors and and just like see what it's like to be an artist for you know like two weeks or to encourage them with their with their skills and their crafts to motivate them to to continue onward i think those help you know lessen the the, uh, the barriers to those like to wanting to be an artist and as of now like for me it's like if those opportunities weren't there for like for myself when I was when I was like just coming of age into like learning about like photography or filmmaking, what can I do to help be that person that that could have been there to like you know help teach native youth or whatever? So that's like that's one of the reasons why you know I I take that interest in, in wanting to like be a teacher or be a mentor or be an instructor and in teaching native youth about like what's like, you know, entry-level filmmaking or entry-level photography and what it's capable of doing. Being able to try and relate to them and have a connection to them, I think that's important. Last question for you, Falcon. Who do you make your art for? I make it for myself. <laughs> like I said earlier, like, I just have a very just organic interest in photography and filmmaking. How do I go about making an image that is of high interest, not only for myself, but for other people? But mainly, like, what do I need to go through to do that? That's what I'm really interested in, like, the process of creating an image. I know, like, there was, like, this one shot that I did in downtown Minneapolis a number of years ago where I basically laid down in the middle of the street and angled my camera, like, towards the sky. And it was during rush hour. And so it was in between red lights. So I just, like, ran in the middle of the street, laid down, <laughs> aimed my camera at the sky, surrounded by, like, these, you know, skyscrapers and took a shot and then ran out of the, like, you know, ran out of the road, like things like that, you know, like there's the image, but I also would like to have like an interesting story behind it. Um, and I, hopefully that reflects, uh, that that comes out in the imagery itself. And I like doing that, I like putting myself in those really like weird or awkward situations. Um, Risking your life for art. <laughs> oh yeah, basically. <laughs> um, but, uh, so there was an, another, uh, experience like that too, where, it was about to rain one day and I saw like lightning. I was like, oh, dude, I, I want to take uh, a, a picture of a light lightning strike. And, you know, I was like, all right, so I'm gonna lay on the ground and just like aim my camera up at the sky and like, hopefully like something will happen. <laughs> and so I, I went to the top of a um, parking garage and it's surrounded by, you know, a metal fence basically. And I was like, yeah, this is a good spot. It's open. No one's up here to, you know, bug me or kick me out. And so, you know, got my camera ready, was laying on the ground. I remember the, the security guard, the security guard, like rolling up in his uh, car, 
slowly and I looked at him and he looked at me and I just gave him the thumbs up. He looked at me, he looked at the sky, he looked back at me and then he got back in his car and he slowly backed away. <laughs> and so I was just like, you know, laying there for a couple more minutes and then, then it happened. Like literally like there was a streak of lightning right over top of me. And once it happened, I just like slammed my finger down on the shutter and took as like many pics as I could for the duration of that lightning strike. And, uh, you know, being in that position where both of my cameras are, you know, holding the camera and, and being basically spread out on the ground, I never felt so vulnerable in my life. And what came next was just like, so like, just, I don't know, cause like, how loud that thunder was and like you could literally feel like the rumble and tremble like inside your body Ooh, like i never felt like that that adrenaline and that that vulnerability but i ended up getting the shot like that and i was like just you know i felt alive yeah and- i saw that that picture on your website it's amazing by the way but I, you can tell you're on a building. And I was thinking, I was like, how did you get that without getting hit by lightning? Exactly. And like, what are the chances of that happening right over top of me? You know, like I saw lightning, you know, in the distance. And I was like, more or less, like, is, is this going to happen? And so I prepared for it and I laid there and it ended up, you know, manifesting and this lightning strike just happened to be overhead, right over camera, and I was ready for it. Being in those situations and and, and being in those those experiences that push your skill set is that's like what I what I really thrive for. Well, it was worth it. Like I said, it's an amazing shot. I'm glad you're alive. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell us where we can find your art and if you have any projects or things you want to promote that are coming up? Yeah, so I do have a website, you know, falcongot.com. It shows a lot of you know my photography and film work from over the years mainly in the fargo moorhead area and current projects yeah you know just like looking for funding for certain things that i would like to try and do as well as a uh a future length documentary that uh is about like i think three years in the works is going to be made available uh, uh hopefully sooner than later Awesome. And that's falcongot with two T's.com. I'll put those links in the description of the podcast episode as well. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for being here, Falcon. It was super fun talking to you and good luck with all of your, all of your projects. Yeah. Thank you, Annie, very much. Thank you for listening to Misfits. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at ACXPMisfits and on Instagram at ACXPMisfits, where you can also send us a message with ideas for the show or let us know if you or anyone you know would like to come on as a guest. We'd love to have you. Special thanks to Drew Swenson, who edited today's episode. You may also have noticed that the theme music is different. That is thanks to Gabe Fordunker 
who wrote us the new beats that you're listening to right now. Drew and Gabe are also in a band called Hawthorne Park, which is on Apple Music and Spotify. You should definitely check them out. <laughs> 